This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. There is no shortage of products out there promising to rejuvenate you and help you feel younger. Actually, I also think there is no shortage of money that people would spend for something that would actually help them be younger and not just look or feel younger. That would be a gold mine if you could come up with that. And I'm sure that's why researchers spend so much time looking into this and why this latest research about immortal jellyfish. Yes, immortal jellyfish is so interesting. For this particular type of jellyfish, when it gets injured or reaches the end of its lifespan, it doesn't die. Instead, it transforms into an earlier stage of its life cycle. Well, that would be pretty handy, wouldn't it? So what can scientists extrapolate from this for us? Well, Maria Pia Miglieri is an associate professor of marine biology at Texas A&M University and principal investigator at the Miglieri Lab and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So what do we know about this jellyfish? What type of jellyfish is this? So this jellyfish is a uh, scientific name is Turritopsis dohorni. This is a very small jellyfish. It belongs to a group that's called hydrozoans. And normally um, in this group, uh, you have polyps uh, that form colonies, much like corals imagined, but without the calcified skeleton. And the polyps form jellyfish at the right time during the year. And uh, the jellyfish, as I said, is very small and usually it really it's the sexual stage of the uh, life cycle. So it releases the gametes in the water and then it dies like a normal ontogenetic cycle. Now, Turritopsis is different because even after releasing gametes of when um, there are conditions that hurt the jellyfish, so there is an increase of temperature, a change in salinity, chemicals, or even physical damage. So even if you cut the jellyfish, uh, the jellyfish doesn't die. And it forms a ball of cells, so it looks like it's dying. Uh, it crumbles and then it forms this ball of cells that doesn't look like a jellyfish at all. And in 24 hours, up to a couple of days, it re- reverts back to the polyp stage. So it, it metamorphoses back into the polyp. Um, and then the polyp asexually can form a big new colony. And the colony will form hundreds of new jellyfish when the season is right. So for one jellyfish that doesn't die, then you get a colony that can produce hundreds that's, of new jellyfish. That's amazing. Marie, did, did we not know about these jellyfish before? Well, we knew about the species since the 1800s, but then the life cycle, this reversal, unique reversal, was discovered in the 90s by a scientist in Italy. And uh, it, it was discovered by mistake because the jellyfish were left in the laboratory over uh, the weekend. And when these scientists went back to the lab, um, they should have been dead because they need to be fed and, and taken care of. And instead, he found the polyp. And so he got interested and he understood that they were able to 
to rejuvenate through this very unique life cycle stage. So what can we learn from this? I mean, if I mean, this would be the, the magic thing, right? This is what all humans want is to find a way yeah. to be young again. Yes, yeah, so uh, the jellyfish is interested not only because it, it can escape death, if you will, right? But also because in that ball of cell that I was mentioning before, there are some cellular processes that of rejuvenation. And so there are cells that were adult and were differentiated into the medusa, into the jellyfish, that can become something else in the little uh, ball of cell Um to form the polyp. And so this process is called the cellular transdifferentiation. It's a very important process when we talk about regeneration. And Turitopsis is a very nice model system where we can study cellular transdifferentiation um, in this very simple animal. And so we can understand how the genes turn on and off during that C stage, what we call the ball, the, 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 when the cells uh, reorganize themselves to form the polyp. And so we can definitely understand the behavior of some very important genes studying Turitopsis. Because this sounds so incredibly promising then, Maria, what's going to happen now with this research? Like, where do you take it? So we're studying the cycle of these animals. We're looking at the genetics of the cyst of this stage, intermediate stage between the dying jellyfish and the regenerated polyps. And we're understanding what's happening there. Uh, right now we see that there is uh, there are genes that are involved in DNA repair, for example. So you can imagine that if you are an immortal animal, if you live a very long uh, life, you need to... Um, clean the DNA from mutations, right? Mutation happens uh, as a background. And uh, um, we are seeing in the cyst, there are some genes that are active in repairing the DNA. So that's a very interesting avenue uh, that we want to pursue to understand uh, better what kind of repair, uh, DNA repair mechanisms are active in this animal. Is there any other creature that you can think of that has a life cycle or does something like this? Well, there are a lot of invertebrates that can regenerate parts. Um, so regeneration in invertebrates occurs very, very often. This is unique in terms of an entire organism, right? An entire jellyfish that instead of dying goes back to the juvenile. And so it has very unique capabilities. And also the cellular transdifferentiation trans that occurs in this jellyfish is unique. So Turitopsis is really different for, more, for most animals are able to regenerate. Um, uh, it has really unique capabilities. That is amazing then. This is like um, almost like the fountain of youth, Maria, isn't it? Uh, a little bit. Invertebrates are able to do so. I think they can tell us a lot about how you can, how a very simple organism can achieve this incredible potential. And so by studying them, we can definitely learn more about genes that also are present in humans and other organisms. And so we can understand better the processes in general of transdifferentiation, of cellular differentiation, and of regeneration. Is that what fascinates you? Do you think, oh, I've never seen this before? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, to me, it's very interesting to understand what's happening in this transition, right, between a dying medusa and a new regenerated polyps. And so uh, what drives me is really trying to understand the processes that govern this very unique metamorphosis. I have a feeling your, your research will be very much in demand, Maria. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. That is Maria Piamilieta, who's an associate professor of marine biology at Texas A&M University, talking about these unique little jellyfish, just a, one particular type of jellyfish that has the ability to essentially metamorphosize 
metastasize. Uh, you know, when they reach the end of their life cycle, they die and then they are regenerated as a younger form. It's amazing. Can you imagine? That is like the fountain of youth right there. That is what everybody seems to be looking for. This is Mornings with Simi. Time now on this Monday morning for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. All right, here we are talking about BC ferries, and this time the Premier has weighed in, so you know it's a big deal. Yeah, we had a double header on Friday. The chair of BC Ferry Board, Joy McPhail, former cabinet minister, finally surfaced and started doing media interviews. So I guess you can tell how much trouble there was there. And then the premier does an event on a Friday afternoon, welcoming the two, the two new members of the legislature. But all the questions are about ferries. So what about it, premier? He says, well, you know, it's unacceptable what's going on on BC ferries. So there you go. He says that he's uh, talked to ferries management on Friday. Didn't tell us who it was, but, you know, congratulations, Premier. The media have been trying to find ferries management all week and not getting anybody. So he talked to them, and he told them it's unacceptable. So we go from there to reporters asking questions. Uh, how unacceptable? Yeah, what does that mean when you say unacceptable? That's like a great word, <laughs> but what does it mean? It's words that politicians use. Like, you know, it's like mistakes were made, but not by me, right? It's like, uh, okay, unacceptable. So what does that mean? All right, well, the Premier says that, you know, if things don't turn around, the necessary action will be taken, which sounds a bit of a threat. But it again, does. there are two reporters came forward to say, including our, our friend Rob Shaw, and it goes, well, well, like, is there some kind of timeline on this? Like, when do you need to see results? It's been a year since you fired the CEO, so how much longer do they have to turn things around? And he ducked the question, got asked it again, ducked the question again. So I don't know how much time he's prepared to give them. It's the first indication we've had that his own patience is running out, so I guess we'll see, I think, all eyes, Simi, next weekend, busiest weekend of the year for BC Ferries. Everyone's braced to see if they can do a better job than they did on the May long weekend and the Canada Day long weekend. Okay, and that is the big issue because that is coming up this weekend. Yeah. Um, any timetable that the Premier indicated for like when well, unacceptable becomes something more? No. No, as no. I said, Samuel, he got asked that a couple of times, and he didn't want to go there. I mean, he, you know, some strong language sort of shot across the bow, maybe trying to give us the impression, but uh, lacking a transcript from whoever he talked to in ferries management, I don't know how much time uh, he's given them. I gather you've got the CEO is surfacing this week, so Nicholas Jimenez, yeah. maybe he'll tell you if he's on a short leash or a long leash. Right, one thing that did jump out, though, from the Premier was, and, and you hear this, we heard this from Rob Fleming, the Transportation Minister, you hear this from New Democrats, which is, you know, we're here. We're here to support BC Ferries. BC Ferries is independent, right. and we can debate whether or not that's real situation, but the government is here to support, and sometimes they even mention that they gave the government this year, out of last year's budget surplus, they gave BC Ferries a one-time grant of $500 million. Oh. 
Now, Vaughn, I love yeah. it when you do your homework, and I know yeah. you actually read where this money is going, but we, I, I want to get into this, yeah. but we're going to take a quick break, yeah. and then when you come back, Vaughn's going to find out where that $500 million actually goes next. All right, we're back now with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. We're talking about BC Ferries, and we know that BC Ferries received a $500 million uh, what do you call it, Vaughn? Like it's a was it a bonus? Was it a extra funding? Like what do we call this? Uh, a grant, bailout. A grant? Okay, it's bailout, giveaway. Uh, but what's it for? Yeah. Is the question. Well, you know, it's interesting. I do love the listeners and I do love the readers because I get these notes and they say, "Well, you've mentioned this a few times that uh, the government and the government's mentioned they gave fairies a half a billion dollars." beginning of the year, back in March. Um, why don't they use that money to, oh, let's see, the website's broken. How yeah. about if you fix that? Or uh, maybe recruit bonuses uh, to recruit some of the holes they have in senior mechanical staff on the ferries. Uh, maybe step up maintenance of the ferries so they don't break down, all that. right? Well, they can't. I mean, I, I go to the website of the transportation ministry i'm directed to the right links i asked and the agreement governing the 500 million dollars is posted there and it's a pretty tight leash first of all ferries can't even use the money until next year april the 1st uh, 2024 and they can only use the money for two purposes uh, the first one is holding down fares over the next four years. So uh, limiting fares to 3% a year, fare increases. The uh, ferries said their view was it was probably going to have to increase fares by 10%. So most of the money is going to go do that. It's paid out installments over four years. And any money left over, well, that can be used to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the ferries. So I suppose, you know, if you were going to buy electric ferries instead of diesel, uh, that might be used to subsidize if electric ferries are cheaper or you could use the money to convert the ferries. But otherwise, uh, they're on a very, very short leash on this semi. The money uh, as I said, is doled out for those two purposes over four years, and any money that isn't used for those purposes has to be given back to the government. So uh, the government keeps telling us, Simi, that oh, the ferries are independent, but you read that agreement, there's no independence at all in how they can use that $500 million. Okay, so that's... <laughs> <laughs> can I tell I you the best passage Yeah, because like, I'm having trouble processing yeah. that. It's like, that just okay, seems so, like very limited. Yeah, it's very limited. And, and my favorite part of the agreement, this is how the New Democrats elect strict political control over messaging. So the independent ferry corporation, arm's length from government, is given $500 million. And the agreement says ferries cannot announce anything, give any speeches, release any news releases, hold press conferences without first clearing the messaging with central government That's with crazy. the new democrats right they have to give the government three days notice business days of any statements they're putting out on this money and the best part <laughs> every statement regarding the five 
hundred million dollars must include the following statement. They must say that they uh, respect with gratitude the provincial government for giving us this money. So they oh, really? have to thank the politics. We gratefully acknowledge the financial support of the province of BC. That's independence? That's arm's you length? Know, okay, what I don't yeah. understand then, Vaughn, is and why keep up that charade? Why, why, not, why don't we just, what is wrong with then saying, hey, listen, if you're going to ask me questions about <laughs> BC ferries and if you're going to make me apologize for it, then yeah, we are going to exert some control. Like, let's just, just, just call it what it is. Well, you'll never get them admit it, but here's what I think the problem is. By pretending, by maintaining the pretext that BC ferries is arm's length, from the government, the province doesn't get, the Auditor General doesn't count BC Ferries debt as part of the provincial debt. So BC Ferries is, has its own standalone debt, well over a billion dollars. I forget what the last number was, but it's a lot because they've been borrowing money to build ferries. That's what they do, right? So if the government had to absorb that billion dollars onto its books as taxpayer-supported debt, it would throw off the numbers. The credit rating agencies might put the government on notice that they're going to lose the AAA credit rating. So they'll never admit that that's the issue. But I think lurking in the background is that's the reason they continue to insist, oh, no, ferries are independent. We don't, we don't control them. They're arm's length. We don't tell them what to do, except for the fact that we dictate the precise wording of their press releases and things like that and fire their CEO. But I, it, it's, it's ridiculous. It's a charade. But I think that's what's behind it, Simi. Okay, and yet what's really ironic is that the money, that grant that we're talking about here, it can't be used for things like recruiting staff or expanding the fleet or fixing the website. Yet those are the exact three problems that are plaguing the system right now. Well, yeah, because they don't even have the money yet. The the first installment of the $500 million, $50 million, is released on next year. Uh, The payment actually is dated, I think, September the 30th, so it's beyond a year away and then there's an installment they grow i think the last one is 200 million dollars uh, in 2027 so most of this money doesn't even go out the door until after the next provincial election but i'm sure that's a coincidence as well simi i course, i'm sure that has, the political timing has nothing to do with the schedule for payments Okay, so this, again, now BC Ferries, gift that just keeps on giving in terms of things to talk about. But all right, thanks for that, Vaughn. Okay, Simi. There's Bob Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. This is Mornings with Simi. If you look at those statistics, inflation is slowly but surely coming under control, right? The latest numbers are at their lowest point in two years. It was 2.8% for the month of June. Except it doesn't really feel like that when you go to the grocery store, does it? Food prices continue to go up. Those packages continue to shrink and get smaller. 
In fact, food prices have gone up more than 9% in the month of June too. And it's not like we can put that off or go without food. We get hit by that no matter what. And that's why this latest report from the Competition Bureau of Canada is so interesting. It is about grocery prices. And the report says we need increased competition in our food retail market to help with high food prices. But will that actually happen? What is so challenging about that? Well, Mike von Massau is an Associate Professor of Food Economics at the University of Guelph and joins us now. Mike, thanks for being back with us. Glad to be here. So, Mike, is it unusual for the Competition Bureau to just kind of come right out and say that? Well, the Competition Bureau really only responds to things when when they were asked when they're asked to. So, last fall, when uh, there were the hearings in uh, the hearings in uh, in Parliament. Uh, and there were concerns about grocers. Uh, the, the Competition Bureau was charged with taking a look at, at competition and, and were asked to do it by June of this year, uh, which they did. Uh, and in that report, they recommended uh, more competition. I'd highlight, though, that the report didn't find a whole lot. Uh, and so there's not a solid foundation, I would say, for the recommendation, and I think we need to be a little bit cautious that that we know what we're getting when we make recommendations like that. Okay, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, the report highlights that there were increases in margins, uh, what they called uh, small but meaningful increases in margins, and those were discussed at the parliamentary committee, uh, and 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 the grocers, whether you believe them or not, said part. A large part of that change was because uh, their pharmacy divisions were selling more and that they weren't making more margins on food. And, and in fact, Sobeys said explicitly, our margins aren't up because we don't have a pharmacy business. Uh, and so there was no connection to profits based on margins. The other thing I think is important to keep in mind is that Companies get big for a reason. There are efficiencies from being big. Uh, if you look at distribution, you look at the ability to buy, and if we automatically, say, break up these grocers without looking at how important those economies of scale are, we may end up having more competition, not arguing that more competition is bad. We may end up having more competition, but higher prices because we lose some of those efficiencies. So I think it's right. important... And what I was disappointed was the, the Competition Bureau didn't acknowledge that and didn't look into that. Like, I don't think people want to see these big companies broken up, but what they'd like to see is more of a discount retailer come to Canada, like Lidl or Aldi. Like, I hear so much about those retailers in the States and what an impact they have. Well, I think uh, the, the reality is if, if there was an opportunity here, they would be here. Part of it is probably because Canada is small. Those companies have established a beachhead in Canada. I think it's worth noting that the Competition Bureau said they talked to some of those retailers, and and one of them said it's going to be hard for us to compete on price in Canada. Uh, and so they had made an explicit, explicit decision not to come in yet. I think we're also seeing that the, the incumbent grocers move some of their stores from, say, mid-level or upper-level stores to discount stores. So we're seeing more of a movement to to discount availability but uh you know 
those stores, Lidl and Aldi could come in now. Uh, we'd have to ask them in more detail why they're not. Right. So are Canadians, do you think, content with our choices right now? Well, I think Canadians are uptight with food prices going up. Yes. Um, and and so uh, they would. Uh, they they there is, I think, a, a feeling that they'd like more choice, but I'm not sure that more choice would give them what they want, which is lower grocery prices. Right. What we want is a, like a grocery price war. Right. Like we want we want to see something that puts these retailers um, on edge a little bit that they have to they have to compete more for our money. Well, yeah, yeah, I I think we'd like to we'd like we'd definitely like to see that. I would argue that these grocers are competing quite hard with each other. We see specials. We see price match guarantees. Uh, You might argue that that's not good enough. Frankly, Walmart's only been in the Canadian market in terms of groceries for about 20 years. So they are a relatively new entrant and, and have, have created uh, competition for the incumbents, as has Costco. So we've had some new competition. You know, maybe some more would help, but I think before we jump into that, let's make sure we do it. I'd like to be cautious. I'm a researcher. I'd like to be sure we're going to get what we think we're going to get rather than going ready, fire, aim. <laughs> uh, which we often do for policy. Right, I know, but it just tells you how frustrated Canadians are. Listen, Mike, thank you so much for your time on that. Well, thanks for having me. That's Mike von Masshaus, an Associate Professor of Food Economics at the University of Guelph, talking about competition in our grocery store industry here. Report from the Competition Bureau saying this this would be a good thing, but how do we make that happen? Like, have you changed anything about your grocery store? Have I'm growing so much more stuff in my garden this year as a way to perhaps not buy as much produce this summer. Uh, but I'm asking you, what have you changed about your grocery store habits over the past year because of prices? This is Mornings with Simi. They're looking for the truth, but sometimes the only way to find it is to confront the lies. They'll see videos of their partners living with singles. But will it really be them? For the first time, deepfake technology will come into play. What? Do they know their partners as well as they think? Okay. Just when you thought reality TV shows couldn't get any crazier, there is a show on Netflix right now. You just heard the commercial for it. It's called Deep Fake Love. I'm trying to wrap my head around it, actually. It's a reality dating show, but it incorporates deep fake technology. So essentially, as you heard, you are testing your relationship to see if you believe what you see or do you believe what your partner tells you. Now, if you ask me... I think that's seriously messed up. Who would sign up for something like that? Well, unfortunately, lots of people would. This whole artificial intelligence frontier is one of the big reasons for the actors and writers being on strike right now, too. It has the potential to change a lot about the entertainment industry and not necessarily in a good way. So how much of a problem could this be? Well, we had a chance to ask Jeff Hancock that. Jeff is the Harry and Norman Chandler Professor of Communication at Stanford University, founding director of the Stanford Social Media Lab. All right. We always love to talk about artificial intelligence with Jeff. Now, Jeff, this one seems to take the cake, though. A reality dating show involving AI. This sounds like a disaster waiting to happen. Uh, it does. I mean, it's uh, it's 
it's fake reality on top of uh, generated uh, media. It's got a whole bunch of stuff that's going to make people crazy. And for those that haven't seen some of these new shows, uh, like Black Mirror, um, time to hold on to your seats. Okay, so what are the dangers here, Jeff, that you see? Well, the the first main thing around things like deep fakes, which for folks that haven't heard that term, is media or content that's been synthesized or generated by AI. In the last year, they have gotten much better and, and really good at this. Still have a hard time making video look uh, super convincing, but I would imagine within a year or so, it'll it'll get pretty pretty convincing. Main danger there, of course, is that uh, we won't be able to necessarily believe everything that we see. Um, we will have to, you know, rely on other sources and and ways of determining whether something is is real or not. So that's the big primary one, and and also this is going to undermine our trust in in things that we see in the media and, and online. This also seems like it would be very discouraging for people, right? Like you're you're actually you're manipulating people's feelings here, right? So when it comes to these TV shows, that is in some ways what uh, directors and creators try to do. You know, even when we think back to books, like a really great book is often one that manipulates our feelings and gets us engaged and involved. And so in some ways it can be thought of as is okay, like this is just a new tool in their toolkit. What I worry about is when people don't know that they're engaging with something that's a right. fake. So when I turn on, yeah, when I turn on Netflix, I know, like, I'm consenting and I know what I'm going to get into here. But if I'm, you know, just on the internet doing my own thing and encounter something, now I'm, I'm unaware. And that is when we get into real problems of manipulation and deception. Also, if you're putting this in the category of reality TV, isn't that also a little bit disturbing? Because it's not reality TV. It's not even close. Although I know even reality TV is not really reality. But this really seems to go way beyond yeah. that. Yeah, it's um, you know, it reminds me when I first watched Survivor back in the day, and that sort of sense of like, whoa, this is a different kind of TV, and I, I think I believed like, oh, this is just the way that this thing happened, and of course, over time we learn that no, there's still a lot of editing and there's still a lot of directing that's being done, and so I like to believe that we, as consumers of media adapt. And so, yes, and initially with these new forms of reality TV where they're using uh, generated uh, video, we might be fooled. But I think humans are pretty good that over time we'll be like, oh, okay, probably some of that was generated. Think of, for example, watching uh, movies that involve CGI. We don't think like, oh my gosh, that plane actually blew up or that building actually fell over. We as, as viewers can understand what is make-believe and, and, and what is real. Right, but it takes time for these kinds of adjustments, and they're usually bumps along the way, are there not? Yeah, that's exactly it. It takes time. I like to think of it as adaptation. So we humans are really good at adapting to new things, um, but it takes time, and there's that first little period where uh, we can be duped, where it could have really uh, upsetting experiences for people. A number of people I've talked to that watch some of the the Black Mirror episodes were like deeply disturbed in ways they haven't felt with, with TV for a long time. I like to remind people that when um, you know movies first were taking place, one of the first scenes that um, was recorded by communication scholars was a train coming down the tracks on a black and white screen 
silent, and it's coming, looks like it's coming into the movie theater. And the people in the theater all get up and start screaming. And it's because they'd never seen a movie before. And this idea that this train was coming at them felt really real. Um, now, of course, we see a train coming at us on TV. Right. We don't get up and scream. But, but exactly like you're saying, that first little bit, we will have some of those adjustments. But the thing is, we've learned to, you know, trust what we see with our eyes. Like, that's, that, there's a bit of a relationship there where we're like, well, I saw it. But now if we can't trust what we see, I guess, do we have to wait until we see something in person before we can put that trust there? Yeah, you bring up a really important kind of irony of the development of these really advanced AI tools, which is they may make our in-person interactions all the more valuable. Will I know that this is what Simi actually is saying and thinking when I talk to her on the phone or over text, not likely. Like you could be using AI right now to help generate messages that are going to be the most persuasive for me, Jeff Hancock, based on all of our previous conversations. And so I, I won't really know if it's Simi saying these things to me until we're face to face. Right. That place is going to be really important. Is on, yeah, is online dating. Like if we were in a dating conversation right now. I need to know, like, is this really you or is this like somebody or something is helping you be funny and smart? And when, we, when you consider how much people rely these days on the online presence to develop relationships and to keep relationships, it seems like we're moving away from more in-person relationships to something that, you know, we don't even know is real. Yeah, I think that we layer... Um, media on top of things. So, you know, we used to think that radio would kill newspaper, TV would kill radio, internet would kill TV. All of those are actually, you know, thriving in many ways, right? The podcasting world is huge, radio is huge, TV is still big. And so instead of it replacing things like, say, face-to-face, we sort of layer it. So when I talk to my friend, I might see him face-to-face, text him, talk on the phone, all that stuff. And so I'm not too worried about replacement. I know a lot of people are. But I do think this will make face-to-face that much more valuable than it already is. That's Jeff Hancock. Jeff is a Harry and Norman Chandler professor of communication at Stanford University, founding director of the Stanford Social Media Lab, talking to us about this new reality show on Netflix that involves deep fake technology. And I always wonder, who would sign up for this? Unfortunately, far too many people would. And this use of deep fake technology really makes you wonder, like, what can you trust when you see something? Can't trust videos necessarily anymore because of this technology, right? You have to see it with your own eyes. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, we're going to talk a little bit about technology right now because, you know, sometimes I think it's a little late for us to talk about figuring out what to do with kids and cell phones because, you know what, they're already using them. They model what they see, their parents' behavior. If their parents are all over them, kids are going to be all over them. But then again, technology is changing all the time. So there is an area for us to still get involved here. And one of those is where the United Nations thinks that we can do more. It's about educating kids in school about technology and the risks associated with that. But can we do it? Can we actually agree on what that kind of curriculum would look like? Well, joining us now is Dr. Lana Parker, Associate Professor of Education at Windsor University. Dr. Parker, thanks for being with us. 
Thank you for having me. Is there a place, do you think, in our schools to educate kids about technology? Absolutely. And I think it's a great question because I think sometimes instinctively there's a reaction to try to disassociate phone use or cell phones from school. So we hear things like, you know, we should have a ban of cell phones in school. Um, And I do agree that there's a valuable um, idea behind limiting screen time. However, the flip side of that, as you pointed out, is that we need proper engagement um, in the classroom through the curriculum with how to make sense of this very complicated online environment that uh, young people start to engage with at a pretty early age. Has it not, is it not too late for that though? Because they're engaging in it, their parents are doing the same, like aren't they learning a lot of this behavior at home already? Yeah, I mean that's a great question. So, you know, you can almost flip it on its head and say, well, it's it's never too late because it's important if we have not really had proper engagement previously or if this has been an area of oversight in education, then it's even more important that we respond. So it's true that most of the um, online use that they see, as you said, is kind of modeled in the house. But, you know, one of the things is that young people are pretty developmentally sensitive and growing up with the technology means that a lot of the content that they engage with is between themselves and the online world. Because unlike previous generations, uh, everybody's got their own screen now. So one of the things that I think makes a really good rationale for having more engagement with at least what they're experiencing online in schools is that we want to deprivatize it. We want to bring what they're engaging with one-on-one on their screens in online life into the real life world, whether it's dinner table conversations or conversations with teachers in the classroom. Right. But if parents can't even agree on the technology and how it should be used and what, if it's good or bad, how, how can we get the schools to figure that out? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things is to not be too prescriptive. That is to say, um, not try to teach very particular kinds of things, like how to use this particular app, for example, which, as you said, you know, some parents would prefer their student or their children to not be engaged with. I think it's more a question of how can we encourage the kinds of critical literacies, so ways of thinking about who we engage with online, how we ourselves present online, how we make decisions about myths and disinformation and what information is real. I think those are things that are really literacy-based and can be disconnected from technology, if you pardon the pun, but also deeply engaged through technology. So um, despite you know the enormous variances in at-home use, the school can really be a place where um, we start to see a little bit more equity of access to things like technology and to discussions, critical discussions, about the content that they're engaging with online. Have we been good at this so far? Uh, We have tried. (laughs) You know, I mean, Ontario, um, for example, um, has a media literacy curriculum. And I think media literacy curricula, even in B.C., across across Canada, has been taken up in different ways. Historically, that looked like, um, you know, alerting young people to uh, media that they would encounter, sort of traditional media, like news media or television advertising or the things that they might see in magazines. 
that curriculum has been slow to evolve. But I would also say that one of the things that is important now is to evolve beyond just one curriculum strand and sort of, you know, moving it off to the side and saying, okay, we've got a digital literacy curriculum, for example, so that's all we need now. Uh, I don't think we've been great at it, and I think that there's lots of room for it to be incorporated critically across things like numeracy and literacy curriculums more broadly from um, kindergarten all the way to grade 12. Sorry, when we say literacy, you're not just teaching them how to use these platforms then. Uh, wouldn't the curriculum be more along the lines of, let's, let's question this, like what is good about this? What is bad about this? Absolutely. So that idea that they are making decisions online about who to follow. Uh, they might not be making decisions. The algorithm might be making decisions for them in terms of making recommendations for other kinds of content. Like on YouTube, you watch this video, so maybe you want to watch this next. So the kind of criticality that they need in order to make decisions well, but also I think that they need an in-real-life place, um, some space and some time in the classroom to talk about what it is that they're encountering. So you know, in my research, I'll talk to young people and they'll talk to me about the comment sections as being some of the oh boy. more popular, yeah. <laughs> the, the more popular, but also some of the more stressful places. And, and sometimes they're turning to the comment section for the kind of validation or reinforcement about how to make sense of the material. And if we leave it there, if we don't provide them with an in-class space to come and make sense of that material then they're going to continue to use tools like the comment section to make those important decisions about whether something is real or reasonable or reliable. Well, that in itself makes a very persuasive argument for media literacy. Dr. Parker, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That's Dr. Lana Parker, Associate Professor of Education at Windsor University. I think that does make a very good argument for teaching kids media literacy, essentially to question those things, uh, not rely on the comment section as being like totally representative of how people feel. Uh, It's good to ask questions, make them understand things like how the algorithm works, how the internet works. These are things that not every kid gets taught, right? So should we have more programs like that in school where they have to learn it? You tell me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. What a weekend for those BC Lions, 27-0. Their win over the Edmonton Elks. We're joined now by Coach Rick Campbell, head coach of the BC Lions. Good morning, Coach. Good morning. How are you today? I am good, thank you. You're feeling pretty good, I can imagine. Well done. Yeah, it was a good win. Yeah, we were, uh, that was a good one to get. And um, yeah, we have a quick turnaround. We played Saturday in Edmonton and then we're on to Winnipeg on Thursday. Okay, so what was the key here? Let's talk about this because you're without Vernon Adams, right? Although it sounds like he was on the bench, but he's not playing. Yeah, so Dane Evans uh, was a guy we traded for in the off season, and uh, you can never have too many good quarterbacks. So he really did a great job of stepping up. the The most thing I was proud about the team is we really played hard for sixty minutes. Um, there was a lot of talk about Edmonton with their record and all that stuff, and I I really liked that our guys didn't get caught up in 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 Edmonton or what their situation was. Is we just wanted to come out and play good football, and our guys did it from start to finish. So good on them. Yeah, but to get not one but two shutouts against a team because you also blanked them earlier in the season, did you not? Yeah, it's crazy. It doesn't happen very often no. in the CFL where you uh, where you have a shutout and to to do it twice in a year. It's pretty uh, pretty neat thing for our defense, and it's also our defense deserves credit number one. But it's also a function of our whole football team, of our offense, and our 
special teams stepping up as well. Okay, so the team is now six and one. You are the sole owners of first place in the West. So how do you keep that momentum going? Yeah, well, we're in a we're in a tough one again this week. We play at Winnipeg. They're they're five and two. They're right behind us. So we've already played there once. This is our second trip to Winnipeg. So um, we don't have. Uh, time to really think about things too long. Like I said, we were in Winnipeg. We play there Thursday night, so it's coming quick. We're back on the field today, and uh, I know our guys will be excited to to get on to the next one. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Like when you have those two games that are so close together like that, so is, does that help you keep the momentum going, or do you worry about the strain on the players? Yeah, you, you, we do. We typically don't like it. We'd rather play once a week, but um, it is what it is. And I, we, last time we played in Winnipeg, it was on a five-day week. So our guys are pretty good about uh, not making excuses about things. So we'll be out on the field today, getting ready to go. And uh, we know it's another big game, and we'll be ready to go. Okay. So what's the mood like? Would you say with the team? Um. I, I I like our guys. You know they're excited. Um, they're you know they're proud of the record and all that stuff. But they're not too excited. They know we got a long road ahead, a lot of season left to play. So they're very workmanlike, which I which I appreciate. So they've been a great group to be around. Is it a good chemistry thing you got going on? Yeah, I, I'm a big believer. You know, you have to have yeah. talent, obviously, in pro sports. But I'm a big believer in chemistry and character and quality people. And we're trying to, you know, surround ourselves with as many good people as we can around here. Okay. Well, the last game in Winnipeg was all right. So let's um, let's hope it goes just as well this time. Good luck. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. That's Rick Campbell, head coach of the BC Lions. So the BC Lions won 30-6 to the previous game against the Blue Bombers. They now play Winnipeg again on Thursday after this 27 nothing shutout win against the Edmonton Elks. They had won 22 nothing against Edmonton earlier in the season. For Edmonton fans, oh man, this is rough. There were boos. There were people wearing paper bags in the stands. Like It is a rough go right now to be an Edmonton Elks fan. BC Lions fans, we know that feeling, but you know what? We're feeling really good. Knockwood about our team right now doing so well. So good luck to them on Thursday playing the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And of course, you can catch those games on AM 730. This is Mornings with Simi. If you've been following along with the port strike situation here on the West Coast, it is confusing. And you've seen that. I've seen that. And then on the weekend, it took another turn when we find out that at the last minute, the union membership rejected the contract that had been put before it, which had already been rejected by the internal caucus of the union before it was accepted again. And it went to a vote. It just turned into a huge mess. And so then the thinking was, well, wait a minute. Does that mean everything is back on strike? Well, now we're hearing that it sounds like they are close to a tentative agreement with the wider membership. But what what is going on here? Well, joining us now is Mark Thompson, Professor Emeritus of Organizational Behavior and Human Resources at UBC Sauter School of Business. Uh, Mark, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Simi. Yes, this is uh, quite a drama here. It is. It's so confusing. Is this unusual in these kinds of situations? Because usually you negotiate with a bargaining committee of a union and they have the say. They're given the power. That didn't really happen in this situation. No, it didn't. Uh, Actually, in normal bargaining, when the parties reach agreement at the table, what they're really saying is they'll recommend the settlement to their principals. And... uh, Usually, that means the union membership. And so, occasionally, the deal that's made at the bargaining table is rejected by by union members. That's 
certainly embarrassing for the uh, bargaining committee because uh, they'd given their word uh, <coughs> to the employers, but it does happen. And in this case, it happened twice, uh, first by uh, the union caucus and then by the full uh, the full membership. Uh, but under the pressure of uh, action uh, by the federal government and uh, with the assistance of the Canada Industrial Relations Board, uh, Saturday night they reached an agreement, and uh, that's going to be submitted uh, to to the members. Um, I think the um, employer members, uh, forty of them, have ra- have ratified, and so now it's up to the union. So this this is. Uh, it's like a soap opera, I think. It, really, it is. But what does this tell us, though, about what was going on there with the membership or the relationship? Because they really seem to have wanted more protection for their jobs. But I think the average Canadian looking at what they were offered was thinking, well, I don't know. It looks like a lot of money to me. Uh, well, you're you're right on both counts. Uh, one of the uh, – uh, or two of the priorities – that the union had from the outset in bargaining was uh, uh, restrictions on contracting out and, uh, and and job protection in the event of technological change. Now, uh, the employer, uh, under pressure from the uh, mediator, improved their uh, economic offer, but didn't do anything about those two priorities. And as best we know, the... Uh, the rejection for, by the membership was because the, those two issues were not addressed. And we don't know the details of the agreement that's uh, now before the members, uh, but, it, but it did address contracting out and job, and job protection. Now, All right, how, but th- there was a big stick here with this too, wasn't there, Mark, though? Because Labor Minister Seamus Erigan came right out almost right away when that happened to say, you know what, we're getting involved here. We're sending this to the Industrial Relations Board. It sounded very much like the government was willing to step in here a little more aggressively than we'd heard in the past. It certainly did. And uh, the Prime Minister had uh, said that something had to be done. And the Minister of Finance, the Deputy Prime Minister, so the heavies in the uh, federal government said enough already, and uh, so the uh, the Canada Industrial Relations Board, which is a tripartite body, assisted the parties in uh, reaching agreement. Now that's not something it normally does, but maybe the fact that uh, both employers and the union were represented at by the board uh, in reaching this agreement uh, gave a gave a better focus on uh, right. resolving the issues. Every time the employer spoke, they said, "Well, look at all the money you're getting." Well, that's their version of the money. You, you know, uh, you get a little different version from the union, but it's they're, they're well paid jobs. I mean, nobody quarrels with that. Right. What do you? What does this do, though? Do you think for? for Canada's reputation in terms of getting things moving and that business reputation? I don't think it matters much at all. uh, You know, business groups say, oh, well, this uh, is bad for our reputation. This is is really a quasi-monopoly. And the alternative is the U.S., which has the same union and had uh, short strikes just a few weeks ago. Uh, And 
Now they're back to normal, and that's what's going to happen here. Uh, but there are losses. There's no question about it. That's the way longshoring strikes are. Every it affects uh, it affects the whole economy. Uh, the uh, government didn't want to intervene, partly out of principle, uh, and partly because if they intervene quickly, then there's a temptation that the parties will come to an impasse in the next time around, and expecting the government to get them off the hook. Right. And there's a history of that here, and uh, they don't, you know, that's you don't. You don't get elected to parliament to settle disputes. <laughs> right. But hopefully then this is the end of it. Like, we don't, who knows what's going to happen, but hopefully this is the end of it. I think hopefully this is the end of it. But uh, as you say, uh, we've said that before. Yeah, we said, I think we said that last time I talked to you. Mark, thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome, Simi. That's Have Mark Thompson, day. Professor Emeritus of Organizational Behavior and Human Resources at UBC Sutter School of Business. Uh, so we know that it sounds like there's a tentative agreement that has now been reached, a new one uh, between the workers and the BC Maritime Employers Association, this with the help of the Industrial Relations Board as instructed uh, by the Labor Minister. Let's hope this one sticks that there's not more confusion about this, but of course, we'll let you know. Also this morning, we were talking about grocery store prices and the idea that do we need more competition in the industry, you know, to get those prices lower? Everything else seems to be coming down in price. Inflation seems to be getting under control, except for grocery store prices. So Beverly wrote me and said, within walking distance from my home, says Beverly, I have Costco, Save on Foods, Walmart, Safeway, and Real Canadian Superstore available for grocery shopping. And she said, and the prices are still outrageous, she said. Uh, there's a couple other options she has. She could drive to a no frills, but she doesn't want to you know, get her car and do all of that. But she said, so I'm not sure competition is the answer to the price problem. She thinks it's a matter of gouging. Everybody has to eat. Grocery stores know they can get away with it. We do have to buy groceries, and she thinks that's really what's going on here. Uh, so, yeah, similar prices no matter where you shop is what she sees. But what do you see out there, too? Uh, let me know, simi at cknw.com. Do we need more competition? Do you shop at the same store, or do you shop around to get the best price? I shop around. I, there's stores that I go to for certain things, but, yeah, I'll go to a different store if I need to to get a good deal on something. But what about you?